0: But this morning, we are continuing on in our journey with Jesus. And last week, we talked about worship, and uh, uh, (laughs) I didn't know until Tuesday we were actually gonna sing the I Am Free song that I was talking about. And I think that was, uh, they asked me to play the drums so I wouldn't actually run around and start (laughs) pulling people into the aisles and dancing. Uh, (laughs) But we talked about worship, we talked about prayer, Uh, we talked about studying scripture, we talked about uh, singing. Uh, and and playing music as uh, things that we do to worship the Father. And this morning we're going to talk about now some, probably the most uh, common activity that we read about that Jesus did. He did this a lot. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how Jesus taught during his ministry and, and why he taught during his ministry. And the why is, is familiar to us, hopefully, if we've been here for a while, because the why came at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Matthew four seventeen, where he wanted to call the world to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus started this whole ministry. And he said, it's time. You've been hearing that the kingdom will come. It is now here. Now is the time to repent, to turn back to God, to trust and obey Him. And throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, He demonstrated the power and the glory of God through everything that He said and everything that He did. And He he prayed for people, and He healed people, and He taught Scripture, and He studied Scripture. But the one activity that we read the most about in the Gospels is Jesus' habit for teaching. And He taught in a lot of different settings. He taught in a lot of different ways. But every time he taught, he taught about the kingdom of heaven and about the Father who reigns there. So Jesus, we learn at the very beginning of his ministry, he, he taught in synagogues, the local gathering places of the Jews in towns all over where he visited, and. They were something like churches. I don't wanna make a comparison because there's a lot of differences, but it was the local gathering place where Jews would worship God on a weekly basis and they would sit under the teaching of a teacher or a rabbi, and they would learn about the law and the prophets. But Jesus didn't limit himself to the walls of the synagogue, which he could have done as a teacher But most of his ministry, almost all of his teaching that we see throughout the Gospels, is out there in the open. He's out with the crowds. Sometimes he's in with a small crowd, sometimes he's in with a huge crowd. Whenever he taught, we read that the people who heard his teaching really heard it, believed that he taught with authority. And in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we read probably what most people would say is Jesus' most famous teaching. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And even if we've not been to church, we've heard teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. The things have just kind of entered into our culture. Turn the other cheek. Is something that's entered into our culture. It's taught there in Matthew chapter five through seven. The Lord's Prayer is taught in Matthew chapter five through seven, and in this teaching, Jesus is mostly being straightforward. Um, He is teaching concepts that the first-century audience could understand because they've heard these things in the synagogues or at the temple when they've gone to temple uh, to hear teaching, and. Even though it's straightforward, some of it's a little hard for us to understand because there are just certain things that we don't come into contact with anymore. But for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, Jesus teaches, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And I read that and I'm like, hold on a minute. Saying you fool is gonna send me to hell? This is what Jesus is teaching here and it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because, I mean, we hear people call other people fools all the time, right? Even in church, it's usually in jest. It's usually uh, not on purpose. But Jesus is saying, saying you fool is as bad as killing them. But we have to look at this whole context, this teaching, and we see that there's more than meets our modern eye. The first thing we see is that Jesus is teaching in order to give us a better understanding of what God sees, what he sees in each of us. And in this case, uh, God is looking at our hearts and looking at the sin that grows from our hearts. And Jesus starts by saying, "Uh, you have heard that it was said of old. And that doesn't mean this is the old way. And some people look at that and say, oh, well, Jesus is saying, well, this is the old way and this is the new way. That's not what it means. What it means is that God established this a long time ago in this case uh, we're talking about thou shalt not murder which is one of the ten commandments and jesus says i'm not here to change the commandments i'm here to fulfill the commandments i'm here to help you understand what the commandments mean and thou shalt not murder is this one thing that he talks about and he talks about uh, lust and he talks about divorce and he talks about taking oaths all in this one passage And then Jesus says, after he says, but you have heard it said of old, he says, but I say to you, and then he starts his teaching. When he says, but I say to you, what Jesus basically is saying here is, this is what God means. This is the thing that you need to be concerned about. And he starts talking, in this case, about anger and insults. And Jesus teaches in this straightforward way because he wants to tell us we've only got things partially right. Jesus says, but I say to you, and he tells us that anger and insults are viewed by God as murder. And this seems a little harsh, except when we read in 1 uh, Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, and the Lord looks on the heart. See, when man sees murder, he knows it's wrong. We know it's wrong to kill somebody. Anybody not know that it's wrong to kill somebody? See me after church. Uh, (laughs) But when we see people, or we do this ourselves, insult people, become angry with people, we believe that these are lesser evils because really nobody's getting hurt. Nobody's getting killed. And that's an excuse that a lot of people use. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I've never killed anybody. But Jesus says, have you ever been angry? Have you ever insulted somebody purposely? Have you ever called somebody a fool in a way that's hurtful? You see, Jesus is talking about a progression of attitudes within our hearts. And he talks about this progression by starting on the surface, thou shalt not kill. And then he kind of digs down to the root of what thou shalt not kill really means. Kind of like a plant, right? So we see this plant here and it's, it, you know, we're just gonna use this as an example. It's the only picture I can find on, sh- on, on such short notice. But He looks at the plant and he says, this is murder, this is what you see, right? And what he's saying then is there's usually something driving that murderous action, right? How many of you wake up in the morning and say, I think I'll kill somebody today? (laughs) Usually people don't do that, very (laughs) few exceptions, but usually I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, think I'll kill somebody today. I don't do that. But do I wake up and remember how angry I am with somebody? Do I wake up and feel that anger kind of welling up in me because I know I have to go deal with that person or that situation today? I do. So Jesus talks about anger, which is kind of the stem that comes up out of the ground of this plant, that anger is going to bring forth some really bad stuff. And it might not be murder. It might be some physical violence. It might be some some emotional uh, distress that we're going to bring on somebody. And And the fruit of anger, the most extreme fruit, is murder. But see, Jesus goes even deeper than anger. Yes, anger can produce murderous results, but what produces anger? And Jesus drills down a little bit more and he gets down to the roots and he starts talking about insults. He starts talking about careless speech. And we may think nothing of it when we say or do something that insults somebody. And a lot of times, especially today, we can say or do something that insults somebody and we don't even realize it because the reality of the situation today is that there are a lot of people insulted by a lot of things. And we may say something and not even realize that we have insulted them or hurt them. But even careless speech can be the root that grows anger. And that anger can grow into something else. And Jesus is saying the Father sees this progression. He's not just looking at the surface, he's looking at the cause. He's looking at what happens to plant the seeds that might grow into this sin that we all know, this murderous rage. Because the seeds of anger left unchecked can be allowed to grow and can lead to violence, can lead to destruction, can lead to murder. God is looking at the seed. God is looking at what is planted in our heart. And God says, if you let that grow, if you decide not to pull that plant out before it grows, then you're responsible as if you had murdered somebody. And a lot of times we hear this passage used as an instruction not to be angry. And partially it is, right? Jesus is telling us, don't be angry. He's telling us to turn the other cheek. He's telling us a lot of things. But the deeper connection, the root of this passage is to keep guard over the things that you say and do. It's to be responsible for yourself and the way that you treat other people. And that's the hard part, isn't it? Thinking before we speak. How many of you uh, always think before you speak? Yeah, I'm going to put my hand down because I don't do that either. Personally, I, I am given to saying things that, that can inadvertently, 99% of the time, cause anger or insult. And I don't mean to say those things. And a lot of times I catch myself as a, you ever catch yourself as you're saying, and you're like, oh, I wish I but often I'll catch myself. And it's not my intention, but even my careless words can bring the same result. And that's why James... When he writes in his letter, in in the first chapter of James, verses 19 and 26, he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. And I'm gonna admit, there are times when I say or do something where my religion is worthless, whether I mean to do it or not, because what James is talking about and what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, in the second part of this talk about anger, is that we're responsible. I'm responsible for what I say. I'm responsible for the words I use. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something against your brother, that your brother has something against you, meaning you have angered your brother in some way, you have done a wrong to your brother in some way. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying the same thing that James says. Your religion is worthless until you reconcile with the person that you've wronged. That's what he's saying. Jesus says it's our responsibility to seek out Reconciliation, when we've caused hurt to another person, we must go to that person in humility and admit that we have wronged them and we need to ask forgiveness. Now, they don't have to forgive me. That's that's their part. But I'm responsible for going and saying, I have said something, I have done something, and I know that it has angered you. And I'm asking your forgiveness. I... Either I didn't mean to say it, or I did mean to say it, and it was still wrong. And I'll ask you to forgive me. And the thing is, I shouldn't expect forgiveness. That's not my part. But I need to ask for forgiveness. This is one of the ways that Jesus taught us, and it's really straightforward. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. If you have your gift here at the altar and you know that you did something wrong, get out. That's what he says. Go. Get out. We'll be reconciled first. Jesus goes on again, and, and we said this before. He talks about lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about making oaths. And every time he says, you have heard it was said, and then he teaches, but I say to you. He wants us to understand the way that God looks at us. He wants us to understand the way that the Father understands. Because if we're going to be perfect the way that the Father is perfect, if we are going to love as the Father loves, we need to understand as the Father understands that we cause Hurt and that left unchecked, that hurt can be just a horrible, horrible thing. Now, another way that Jesus taught is through uh, these uh, things called parables. Now, for those of you who are not into big churchy words, parable really just means telling a story. And that's the way that I like to put it storytelling. Jesus was a master at storytelling, and he used his stories most often to try to paint a word picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, he's teaching, this is the kingdom of heaven. Especially for people who might not have any idea or who might have a wrong idea. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven? I mean, think of it like this. Think of it, you're, you're, you're walking up to somebody and they have never experienced the beach. They've never experienced the ocean, and you walk up to them and you say, oh, we just had the most wonderful beach vacation, and they have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. What would you do? We'd probably try to paint a word picture. Of course, today, we have the internet, and hit, click, here's the beach. But if we don't have our phones with us, if we don't are close to the computer, we might want, tell them a story, a word picture, describing things that they know about. Well, sand is, is kind of like dirt, except that it's like finer, and it's kind of grainy like salt. Uh, and, and we try to get them to kind of picture in their minds what we're talking about. There was a movie back in the 80s uh, called Mask. Uh, it starred Eric Stoltz uh, and Cher, And in one scene, uh, Eric Stoltz is trying to describe color to a blind person. And the blind person is played by Laura Dern. Anybody ever try to explain color to somebody who has never seen anything before? So Eric Stoltz, he takes her into the kitchen, into the camp kitchen, and he hands her ice, and he says, this is blue. And she feels, like, the cold, and she feels the ice. And he says, this is blue. And then he hands her a stalk of broccoli. And he says, this is green. And she takes the broccoli, and she kind of holds it, in, and she, she smells it, and this is green. And then he takes, he has this stone that he's had in this hot water on the, on the stove, and he takes it out, and he's kind of, juggling it around and he hands it to her and she's juggling it around and she and he says this is red and when it cools off it's pink and she's holding the stone and you can see the understanding i understand color eric Stoltz was a master storyteller he was able to show her something that she couldn't see by describing it in other ways and jesus was a master storyteller he taught us concepts that we couldn't probably understand at all about the kingdom of heaven in luke 15 jesus tells a series of parables or stories to try to get the scribes and the Pharisees, the the religious leaders, to understand one simple concept. Why do you hang around with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you spend your time with them? The Pharisees and the scribes couldn't understand that. They thought they were supposed to be separate from the tax collectors and the sinners. They weren't supposed to do anything with the tax collectors and the sinners. And Jesus said, let me tell you a story. And he first starts by talking about a shepherd, which the scribes and Pharisees would know about. And he says in Luke chapter 15, verses four through six, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that is lost. He then explains the point of the story in verse 7. Just so, or I say to you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And I kinda get this sense of Jesus, righteous people. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees here. You think you're righteous. There's more celebrating in heaven when one of these tax collectors and sinners comes back to God than for all of you he makes the same point again he tells another story this time a woman has lost some money and she tears the house apart looking for it and when she finds it she invites her friends over and says look I found my money how many of you have ever lost money we've lost money we actually don't know where where an envelope went that we had some money in and we were like I have no idea where it is we never found it if we found it today, first of all, it would probably be uh, very, very close to a miracle because we, we haven't seen it in like 10 years. But we would rejoice. And anybody who knew that we lost that money, we would be like, look, we found it! And I have a feeling that if we ever did find it, it would be exactly at the time that God knew that we needed that money. But we rejoice. And he says that heaven would rejoice at one sinner coming back to God. And then he tells the big story, the famous story, the story that everybody knows. Talks about a boy who left his home, squandered his father's fortune, and came back. And we know this story is the story of the prodigal son. And prodigal son is one of those things that we hear about in just in regular conversation, oh, the prodigal son has returned. I say that to my, my son when he gets home after, you know, a long day at school. The prodigal son has returned. But people know what that is. People have an idea of what that story is. And Jesus, you've got to remember, Jesus is not teaching to the people at this point. When he teaches the prodigal son, he's teaching to the religious leaders. He's teaching to the people who should know this stuff in the first place. And he has to teach it. And Jesus is trying to tell them why it is so crucial that he hangs out with these people that they don't like. Because they believe them to be the lowest of the low. We don't don't associate with those people. And Jesus uses some shocking images. I mean, we don't see them as shocking today, but shocking for that culture. So let's look at this story really, really briefly and just see what Jesus wanted his audience of religious leaders to understand. And we start in chapter 15 of Luke, in verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, the two sons. In Jesus' day, for a son to ask for his inheritance before the father's death, was like telling the father, I wish you were dead. That's what it meant. I wish you were dead. Give me what I have coming to me, and I'm just going to take off. That's shocking image number one for the Pharisees. And what's worse, the father did it. The father said, okay, divided up everything. Here's your half. What self-respecting father would even honor such a request? This is the, the thoughts that the Pharisees had to have had going through their minds. And we move on to verse 13. Not many days later, the young man gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property on reckless living. Well, of course he squandered his property They probably would have thought this boy is a sinner with no respect for anything or anybody. Of course, he squandered his inheritance. And in verse 14, we read on, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Serves him right, hope he starves. That's what the religious leaders were thinking. We move on to verses 15 and 16. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. And that second part really probably didn't matter much because the first thing that the Pharisees heard was pigs? Unclean swine? How could he do that? I would rather die than to even come within 25 feet of such a filthy, unclean animal that God has told us never to touch. And here he is, touching these pigs. I wouldn't want to come within 100 feet of him. I'd rather get closer to the pig than to the person that went in and touched it. Throughout this part of the story, Jesus is painting a really dire picture of this boy. He has basically made this boy just like the tax collectors and sinners that the Pharisees have been complaining about. And then he turns the wheel. And in verses 17 to 19, Jesus says, but when he came to himself, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. When he came to himself, some versions write when he came to his senses, Quite literally, he's standing in the filth of pigs. He's standing in pig dung. He's seeing all of this stuff around him, all of these pigs wallowing in this mud. And while he's looking around, he happens to catch what his body looks like. And it's emaciated. And it's just withering away to nothing. He is literally starving to death. And the son makes a decision. And he doesn't say, Father, I'm home. Please take me back. He says, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to hope, and I'm going to pray with everything that is in me that my Father could look on me with just enough pity to hire me on as one of his hired servants. I know I'm no longer good to be inside. And can you imagine what the leaders are thinking right now? This father has been humiliated and hurt. There's no way that he's going to take this son back. But that's not how it went down. Because we read in verses 20 to 24, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way (laughs) off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, we're fairly sure in this story the boy didn't shower first. He didn't take a bath. He just got up with the strength that he had left in his starved body and walked home. And the father saw him from a long way off. The father was looking for his son. And he saw him, and he ran to him, and he hugged him, and he kissed him, dirt and dung and all. And by now, the scribes and the Pharisees' heads must be exploding. Not only are they touching the pig dung, and he's touching the kid, and he's, what, you're touching an unclean sinner. How could you possibly do such a thing? And Jesus goes on, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And we, we, we've read this before. This is what he rehearsed. This is what he was going to say. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He repents. He turns back to his father. He recognizes his need for his father, even if it's not in the relationship that he had before. He recognizes the need for the father. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The son didn't even get a chance to finish his speech. Dad was just so excited to have him home, to have him safe, to have him back. And he was full of compassion and he was full of forgiveness And the father goes on, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Remember, Jesus started this whole passage in Luke 15 talking about how heaven celebrates when one sinner comes back home. And Jesus tells this story. Let us celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, this is why I hang out with tax collectors and sinners. I'm planning a party. I'm planning a celebration. And any one of these people who comes back to relationship with my Father, we are going to celebrate like you have never seen before. Jesus teaches us over and over that the Father wants us back. That's what repent means. Turn back around and see the Father. See how important he is. See how much he loves you, how much he wants to care for you. And Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, if we want to see that happen, if we want to see people repent truly repent and turn back to the father we're gonna have to get our hands dirty we're gonna have to stop thinking of sinners as these dirty filthy people that we don't want to associate with we gotta get there we gotta go to the sinners we gotta talk to them we've gotta live with them we've got to care for them that's what Jesus is talking about and we're gonna have to hang out with sinners and tax collectors today. <clears throat> we're gonna to have to start looking at people, not as people who are sinners, but as people who are wanted by God. People who God wants back. And we're gonna to need to go to them where they are because I've got news for you, they're not lining up outside. They're not waiting for the doors to open at the local church to come in and find God. We've got to go, and we've got to show them who God is through our actions, through our caring, through our love. We need to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, with those people who would never walk into a church. Jesus did all of this teaching. Jesus told us how we should relate to God, how we should relate to others. And then he did something incredible. He sent people out. His teaching wasn't just for people to sit there and say, oh yeah, that's good teaching. His teaching was there because he wanted people to go out into the towns, into the cities, into the world and share his message. And next week, we're going to see Jesus sending out his disciples, those who have sat under his teaching to go and teach those things that he has been teaching and to do those things that he has been doing. And I really, I hope that you can be with us next week. But would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the cold and the warm and everything that you have going on just in your nature that is preparing us for the spring. And Father, we thank you for the things that are going on in the individuals here and in the congregation that are preparing us for harvest, Father, put into our hearts a desire to be with the tax collectors and the sinners. Put in us a desire to show them who you are through our words, through our actions. And Father, we pray that just one would turn back to you, one would come back to your embrace, and we will celebrate. Father, we thank you so much. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you believe that this morning? That nothing compares with the promise that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? If we believe that truly, we want other people to know it if we believe that nothing compares, if we believe this is the greatest, this this is the ultimate, then we're going to show people God's love. We're going to take care of people the way that God takes care of them, and we are going to love them as God loves us. I pray that as you go out this week that you will show Jesus Christ Show his power, show his grace, show his care to the people that you encounter every day. God bless you this week.